and turn to 1 John chapter 1. This summer, as we worship together as one family in one worship service, we're going to be walking through the four letters of John. Yes, there are four. Three of them are called 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. The fourth one actually is a compilation of seven letters and explanation of those letters that we call the book of Revelation. So over the next three months, we're going to be walking through those letters together, and I hope you can be here as often as you can, because God's Word speaks, those ancient words that are ever true. And it's our privilege to open God's Word and allow Him to speak to us. This has been a wonderful week for our family for two reasons. Number one, thank you so much for giving uh, me the privilege to be able to take vacation time and be away, and it was a wonderful week. Um, Ate many more calories than I should have. Um, Watched a whole lot lot more movies than I probably should have over the week, but it's it's been a wonderful week. It's also been a very exciting week for us because most of you know that Reese is involved in a what's called a rising senior program that Union University does. For those of you that um, were in school and college that have what they call a 414 system, you know that you would have a a fall semester and a spring semester. And usually there was a little one-month term in January, a concentrated term, and then one in June and one in July, where you basically squeeze 15 weeks' worth of class into four weeks. And uh, so you don't take a lot of classes during your J terms. Um, and Reese is involved in that. He's getting six hours of college credit at Union University, uh, and then he'll come back, do his senior year, and then, Lord willing, the next fall will be at Union as a full-time student. And we're excited about that. One of the things that I told Reese before he went, I said, you need to understand that there's one among many differences between college and high school. One of them is, is that the teachers, in most cases, will not give you assignments as the semester goes on. They will give you a piece of paper, or two, or three, or four in some cases, with a list of all of your assignments for the entire semester. Once they put that in your hands, that's all they're going to talk to you about. They won't even warn you a test is coming in many cases. You have the, what's called the syllabus. And that syllabus will tell you what you need to study, what you're going to learn, who is qualified to take the course, just to make sure that you're in the right place, and then why you're taking this class, what you will hopefully accomplish by spending this 15 weeks, or in the case of a J-term, 15 weeks squished down into four of being in world civilizations to the 18th century, which is one of the classes he's taking. A syllabus, an important thing to help you understand what is going to happen in a particular course of study, who is qualified to be in that study, and why it's important for you to take it. In the first four verses of 1 John, chapter 1, we have, in essence, John's syllabus. John is going to explain to his readers what it is that he's going to teach them, who it is that he's going to be teaching, and why it's so important for them to listen and to understand the teaching that he's going to have for them. So this morning, I want us to look together at 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and lay out the stage by answering those three questions. What? Who and why? I want us to read again, if you would, follow along. Let me read for us the four verses that Charlie read for us a few minutes ago, and then we're going to break it apart and see what God has to say to us. This is the word of the Lord. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, 
That life was revealed and we have seen it. And we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Question number one, what? What is John wanting to teach these readers as they read this letter? These disciples of his as they are reading Well, he's going to talk to them about something that is obviously vitally important to him. You know, one of the things about an opening to a letter like this is kind of like when I'm at work and I call Sharon on the phone to find out about lunch, and I can tell by the way she answers the phone what kind of morning she's had. Have you guys experienced that with your spouse? You can tell by the way they answer the phone how their day is going. And we can immediately tell from the beginning what John is going to be dealing with even before we get deeper into the book. If you know about Paul's letters, most of the time Paul's letters start with Paul or Paul and Timothy to the church at Philippi, grace and peace be to you. Paul, a servant of God, called to be an apostle to the church that is in Rome. Paul and Silvanus to the church at Ephesus or whatever it may be, but John doesn't start that way. That was the classic beginning. Just like with us to this day, we always tend to start a formal letter, dear sir, dear ma'am, dear Steve, comma, new paragraph, and you begin writing your letter. John doesn't do that. John jumps right in with the very first word and says, what we, what was from the beginning, what we have heard and seen with our eyes and observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John is interested in planting in the lives of his readers a truth that is central to what it means for us to be Christians. In a few minutes, when we get to the application part of this, uh, of this time together, we're going to talk about why this is so real for us. But it's obvious that John has an agenda in mind right from the very beginning. Because first of all, you notice he says what and not who. Wouldn't you have thought if he was going to write about Jesus, he would say the one who we have known from the beginning, the one who we have met, who we have talked with, who we have touched, who we have listened to? He, say he says that which... He uses an impersonal, neuter sort of pronoun rather than a personal one. Because what he's going to talk about is more than just a person. Now granted, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of salvation, is so intertwined with the person of Jesus that you can't have one without the other. But John wants them to understand, this is more than just a story about a person. This is more than just introducing you to someone that you never had the chance to meet, but we did. We want to share with you something that is critically, vitally important to your life. The literal word of life itself. He starts out by saying that was what that which was from the beginning. Not just the beginning of their experience. Not just the beginning when Mary conceived Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Not just from the beginning of the Bible. But from the eternity past. From the very beginning of beginnings before the first tick on the earth's clock ever ticked. This word of God was... This is the same John, remember, that wrote the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now he is saying, that which was from the beginning, and immediately his readers know, I know where we're going with this. He then adds all of these personal, tactile sorts of experiences. We have heard and seen and observed and touched Because he wants them to understand this is something that is not just some philosophical theory we're going to discuss. 
This is not some sort of, 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 of a pattern of living based on some metaphysical postulates. Well, that's a good word. This is something that is as real and as earthy as the mud between your toes when you walk through the streets of Jerusalem on a rainy day. It's just as real as the sweat that you can smell when you've finished working in a harvest field. We saw him. We touched him. We spoke with him. We experienced him. This is not something we believe. This is something that we know. We know this is true. And we're writing because we want you to know this as well. John has a message for these readers. Now, it's obvious if he starts the way he does, something is going on with his disciples. Now, I don't know how much you know about the, about the Apostle John. I don't want to take a lot of time and give a lot of background. But I do want to just say that John, in some ways, is very different than Paul. Paul was called of Christ, called of God, to go to various places and start churches, plant churches. From everything we know about John, both from Scripture and from early first century writings and early second century writings, John's calling was more to be a teacher. John most likely had a school of disciples that he taught. He was probably the youngest of the disciples, and at this point, probably when he's writing this letter, he's the only one of the original 12 that's left alive. We don't know that for a fact. That's a little bit of speculation. But since you don't hear him talk much about any of the others, we assume, and we know that he ended up dying on the Isle of Patmos in, in 90 A.D., this was probably written somewhere between 80, 80, and 85. And John had these followers, these students of his, that he had been teaching. And then he sent them out to begin working, almost like a seminary that then sends the students out into the field. And he has heard that there's a problem, and he needs to correct that problem as quickly as possible. So he starts at the very beginning and said, okay, I'm going to lay a foundation right here. We're going to be talking about something that we know because of our personal experience. Not something we've been told second or third or fourth or twelfth hand. This is something that we know and you can know as well. He goes on in verse 2. He kind of puts a little parenthesis here. He says, that life was revealed and we have seen it. And we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. He said, this is not just about living a good moral life. This is about eternal life. I asked my Bible study group this morning, how many of us in and of ourselves have eternal life? Not a one of us. Every one of us knows that eventually Kornheim is going to come knocking on the front door of our house. And they're going to wheel us away on a gurney. And they're going to put us in a box and take us out to Colmer Memorial or wherever. And our lives, temporally speaking, is going to end, are going to end. But God had something that we don't have. God had eternal life. A life that not only is eternal because of its longevity, but also eternal in terms of its quality. And he says, I want to share that. And the way I'm going to do that is by sending my son to bring this gift of life by his death on the cross for your sins. So that you can be reconciled, we can be reconciled together, and you can have the life that I have, that my son has, even though he lives in temporal flesh, and that you can have. As we get into this letter further, we're going to discover that there, in fact, is a problem. But already, even if you've not read through the book yet, You can tell, obviously something is up or else John would have been a lot more casual in his opening greeting. The thing that was happening was that word, that that, that philosophical religion, I guess you could say, called Gnosticism. Now, I don't know where we are as a group on what we know about Gnosticism, so let me pretend like none of us know anything about Gnosticism, and I'll take about three minutes and explain it to you. Gnosticism started actually during the Jewish period. There was a branch of Gnosticism, still is today, among Judaism. 
And it had to do with this sense of gaining enlightenment through knowledge, secret knowledge that could be imparted from one person to another. It was a very mystical sort of secret society almost kind of a thing where they would pass on knowledge and their spirits would would become more and more pure. And so the way that you gained light and life and peace and joy was through learning these secrets, these very mystical sort of things. And you would go off and you would decode certain passages and you would learn certain things and then you would be enlightened and that would gain you. But what happened from that is they began to separate the physical life from the spiritual life. So what that led to is one of two things. Either you had people who were very ascetic in the sense that they just denigrated their body. They, they, they mistreated their body. They had no care for their body because the body was evil. They spent all their focus on the spiritual life, often to the point of even actually starving to death. Because they said, well, the body is evil. The quicker I get out of my body, the better off I'll be. Or, one that probably would appeal a lot more to Americans, they said, you know what? If your body's going to be evil, go ahead and do whatever evil you want to. It really doesn't matter as long as your spirit's in good shape. You can do whatever you want with the body because the body is evil anyway. But just make sure that your spirit is okay. That seems strange to us, but it was very common that they said, you know, if the body is bad anyway, we know it's going to be bad, so you just go ahead and just live however you want with that. And what happened was, as Christianity began to blossom after Pentecost, this sense of knowing, they kept hearing words like light and life and, 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 and bread and darkness and way and they said ah that sounds like what we believe so let's start bringing that into our sense of religion kind of like a hindu would do and just pull all the christian teaching into their mystical sort of knowing things so that you can become better than those around you more enlightened than those around you and so what happened was there were basically two types of christian gnosticism in john's day one group were called Docetists, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-T-I-T-S, Docetists. They believed that when Jesus came, he looked like a real person, but he really wasn't. He really was just a spirit. If you had reached out to touch Jesus, it would, your hand would have just gone right through him. He was just a spirit. He looked real. He could walk around. He could eat. He could do all, but he really wasn't a real human because we all know that the body is what? If you're a Gnostic, the body is evil. So how could God be in something that's evil? He can't be. So he must not have a real body. And on the other side of it, there were the Serinthians, named for a guy by the name of Serinthus, who said, yes, Jesus was real, he absolutely had a body, but he wasn't really God. See, what happened was at his baptism, the God's, God's spirit came into him. And even though he had Mary for a mother, Joseph for a father, he was a sinner just like everybody else. When his baptism occurred, the Holy Spirit came onto him and guided him and taught him and led him. But then the minute Jesus went to the cross, because God cannot suffer pain, God cannot die, the spirit left him. And so Jesus died just as a mortal man. That's why he cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, you don't have to be too smart about comparative religions to recognize at least one of those two theories alive today. Matter of fact, if you drive to to Redbud, you'll drive right past a house of worship that teaches that Jesus was a sinful mortal man who was endowed by the Holy Spirit in his baptism and yet who died a sinner just like everybody else. So it's still alive today. So you see what these Gnostics were trying to do is they were trying to say either Jesus isn't really a man, he was really just a spirit that appeared to be a man, or he was completely a man but could not be God. And John says, we've got to stop this right now. We've got to get this thing straightened out. Because the thing that is the bedrock of what it means to be a Christian are the things we've been singing about all morning, and that is Jesus 
is the Christ. Jesus is God. You see, that's why he talks about Jesus as being right in the line with God. Now, we're going to see that just when we get into uh, verse 3. We're talking about, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. But John wants to make sure they understand that this is a vitally important premise for their lives as Christians. That they cannot fudge. They can, there are a lot of other issues in their Christian teachings that people can disagree on. But we cannot disagree on the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He wasn't some spirit that pretended to be a man. He wasn't some man that pretended to be a God. He was and is fully God and fully man. That's what he was teaching. That's the what. Now, what about the who? Who was this for? Who was learning this? And this is something that's very important for you to understand. This book was not written to lost people. This letter was not written to non-Christians. This letter was written to people who were followers of Christ but were being led away into a teaching that would put them in a position where they were at, at odds and in controversy with other believers. Their fellowship was being broken with others within their church family. Their fellowship with God was being broken. So if you're here this morning, if you're in the room and you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, You've not surrendered your life to him. You're not following him as your Savior and Lord of your life. I want you to understand, this does not mean you can't learn anything from what we're going to be, what we're talking about. But I want you to hear, because I'm presenting this to you in much the same way as John would have presented it to, to people that he would meet to say, this is, in, this is critically important. You can't fudge on this. You can't hedge on this part of what makes us who we are as Christians. Because without the incarnation, there can be no redemption. And without the death of Christ as God, there can be no salvation. And so the two things must come together. That's why in the Christian church, what are our two big celebratory holidays? Christmas and Easter. Christmas celebrates his incarnation. Easter represents his death, burial, and resurrection to bring us salvation. And the two are critically important to make us who we are as believers. So the two, the who that this is written to are believers who needed to get back into fellowship with God. This is so important. I want to share this with you so that you don't think this is all about how to share the gospel with a lost person. We do need to share with lost people about who Jesus is, what we believe about the gospel, what we believe about Jesus' life, death, and burial, and resurrection, what it means for us, what it means for our salvation. But we also need to hear it. That's why last week at the end of our series on Life on Mission, I talked about the fact that you don't have to try and figure out who's already a Christian and who isn't when you're talking about your story because everybody needs to hear your story. Because there are a lot of people out there who are Christians but who have wandered away and who have gotten away from God, who have lost their fellowship with God, lost their fellowship with other believers, and they need to come back. And they oftentimes will come back by hearing from us about what we have experienced, what we have seen, what we have heard. I'll get to application again in just a second. The what? The message of the Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. We've lived with him, we've seen him, we know who he is. The who? Those who've accepted Jesus Christ and who need to know how this truth affects their lives. Thirdly, why? Why do they need this? Two reasons. Number one is fellowship. Look in verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you. That's the same word as preach or proclaim. We, we present this message to you so that you may have fellowship along with us. I understand why the Holman Treasures put the word along in there, but I wish they hadn't in some sense. Because it sounds like, okay, we're all in fellowship and we want you to just kind of come alongside of us. But it really means that you may have fellowship amongst us, along with us. 
so that together we'll be one body. We took a lot of time this morning um, in my Bible study group uh, getting a little uh, business business law uh, education about the difference between a corporation and a partnership. And I'm not going to go into it now, but most of you know if you enter into a partnership, all of the partners are jointly and severally liable if there's any legal action taken. And the word fellowship, that word koinonia, does not mean a cup of coffee and a donut before Sunday school. Okay? Fellowship does not mean getting together and having a potluck. Fellowship, the word for fellowship, means literally a sharing together as one. He says, we want you to have fellowship along with us together. So that we are all in this thing. We sink or rise together. We sink or swim together. We succeed or fail together. We are one and we have this fellowship among us. John will tell us later about chapter 4. He says, this is how we know that we have eternal life. Because God has planted his Holy Spirit in us. And so that Holy Spirit that lives in the heart of a believer, that guides us as followers of Jesus Christ, that also links us together with other believers. That's why it's so important that we not grieve the Holy Spirit. so important that we not damage our relationship with the Holy Spirit because that damages our relationship with our fellow believers. But it's not just a horizontal thing. You notice he says at the end of the verse, he says, and indeed our fellowship, and now that would include them too if you're part of us, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So there's a horizontal element and there is a, a vertical element and a horizontal element to this fellowship that they have with one another and with the Father. This is very, very important. And I'm going to go ahead and jump just for a second to application. We need to understand and we need to declare that the church is not like the Rotary Club. We're not just a spiritual Kiwanis club that come together because we have similar desires and goals and plans and projects. We're not just here as a bunch of monads who have similar likes and dislikes, and so we come together for the common good to work and hopefully make a difference in our community. That is not what a church is. Nor are we a school where we come together to get more education and learn more things and have more knowledge. We are people who are set adrift in the ocean of this world, and all we have to count on is our captain and each other. And you know what? That's all we need. That's all we need. Jesus Christ, our captain, guiding us and our fellowship with one another. The church is a unique place. So in a sense, when we come together and we share this common bond with one another, this fellowship that we have with one another, not only does that strengthen us, it also means that we share this bond with our Heavenly Father. And and I just... just, I don't want to overplay this point, but you've got to understand that's more than, let me tell you my testimony this Sunday, you can tell me yours next Sunday. This is more than just, well, this morning in Sunday school, Bill's going to tell us about what happened to him this past week, or, or Mary's going to tell us about what's happened in her life. And so, like, we're, we're discreet individuals, each telling about our personal relationship with God in a very spiritual, and I'll even use the word mystical if you'll allow me to do that, way we together experience our bond with the Father. So when Lori Welty goes through a difficult time with her son, we hurt for her. We hurt with her. We hurt with Wyatt. When someone comes in and says, you know that job I've been praying for? I wasn't expecting. I got the job. I'm so excited. We all rejoice because we are linked to one another and all of us together are linked with our Heavenly Father. And if you don't get that, just go home and pray about it this afternoon, okay? And, and the light will come on sooner or later.
fellowship. Second why, joy. I've used this example before. I don't want to overplay it, but you remember when you were a kid and you bought Christmas presents for mom and dad at the little Santa secret shop and all you, you could hardly wait for dad to open your present that you got for them because the greatest joy, maybe next to getting your own Christmas presents, but next to that, the greatest joy was in seeing them open the thing that you bought for them. It brought you great joy because you were able to do something for someone else. And so when they opened that present up, when they saw that thing, when they opened up that envelope and saw that note that you had written to them saying, I'm so thankful that you're a friend of mine. I'm so thankful that I can be praying with you. I'm so thankful that we can walk down this path together. It brings the writer more joy than the recipient. And John is saying, you need to understand, when we get you back in line, and when we get you in the fellowship, our joy will be made complete. Our joy will be fulfilled. Because this is our greatest joy to know that we are all walking together in fellowship with one another. Let me take these last few minutes and talk about why this speaks to us today. I've already alluded to several things. Let me just kind of draw the net and we'll pray. Number one, we are living in a world today. I teach a Bible study group on Sunday mornings of young adults, most of whom are under the age of 30 or just right around 30. Same generation as my and Sharon's older boys. And for their entire lives, they have lived in a a society that says, we are going to be a pluralistic society and we must give everyone the equal benefit to choose what is right for them, what they feel is best for them, as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. And as Americans, I would defend that to the hilt. As much as I may disagree with certain things, as much as I may be morally repulsed by certain things, as an American, if a person chooses to take a certain action, as long as it doesn't hurt other people, They have the right to do that as an American citizen. But as Christians, we need to understand what's called the scandal of particularity. The scandal that says we believe and we know that there is no other way to the Father except through Jesus Christ. And you know what that means? You want me just to go ahead and say it? It means that when your Muslim friend prays to Allah, they are not praying to God. Now just go ahead and let that soak in because that's going to hit some of you a little bit. You say, well, now, Pastor, I mean, aren't we all praying to the same God? They just don't understand it like we do. No, 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 no. Jesus says, the only way you can come to my Father is through me. The only way that you can talk to my Heavenly Father is through me. If you try to talk to my Father without going through me, he will not hear you. Except the cry of his general grace or the cry for salvation. We're not all praying. Some of you were here. Remember the upside-down mountain? We all think we're working up toward the same place, but we're not. We all started at the same place, but we wander in different directions as we go out. And we must be courageous not to cause trouble, not to, not to create havoc, not to create controversy, but we must live our lives with at least the same commitment to Jesus Christ being core and central to who we are. This is why, and beloved, I'm just going to speak the truth. This is why when there was a call for a prayer meeting at the courthouse lawn to pray for those Nigerian girls that had been kidnapped. And I was graciously asked to have the opening prayer. And the opening prayer that had been written by someone who was obviously not an evangelical Christian that says, oh God, of every religion and every faith persuasion, we call on you. And I said, I cannot pray this prayer. I will not. And nor will I ask my people to come and be a part of something like that. We must stand on the particularity of Christ. We must, now it doesn't mean we have to fight, we just have to lovingly say. And listen, I lived in a world, I lived in a world for 10 years where there were at least three major religious groups, okay? I can guarantee you, if we were in a meeting, 
dealing with the refugees in western Tanzania after the Rwanda-Burundi crisis. And we're all sitting around the table and we're all meeting. We're intense in the discussions. And we'd hear, Guess what all the Muslims would do? They'd say, excuse us, we have to go pray. Didn't matter what we were doing. You could be in the middle of buying a car. They'd say, I'll be back in an hour. I have to go pray. Can we not be at least as committed to Christ as they are to Allah? Can we not say... I believe that Jesus is the only way to Christ, and I'm sorry you don't agree with that. I'm not going to try to force you to change. All I'm asking is that you don't try to force me to either. I'm going to take my stand for Christ. And that includes being around other people who call themselves Christians. There are many, many things we can discuss, many, many things within the church family that we can disagree on, many doctrines and teachings, but the one thing we must never, ever budge on is Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He is the Word of God. He is the only way to salvation. He is the way, the truth, the life, the bread, the light. That is who Jesus Christ is, and there is no other. And when a fellow pastor in his community stands up and screams at a Christian woman, so you're saying if I'm a Muslim that I'm wrong and I'm going to go to hell, we should say, yes, absolutely, that's what we believe. I don't care if he is preaching from a pulpit a quarter mile from where I'm standing right now. We must speak the truth. I believe with all my heart one of the reasons we're in the situation we are in this nation today is because we have not spoken the truth enough in previous decades. We've not. Now, that again, please, 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 you should know my heart. No, I am not a placard-waving, banner-thinging, paint-slinging, mud-tossing. That's just not who I am. We live our lives gently and quietly but firmly. We are a rock for what we believe about Jesus Christ. Because we live in a world that is so much like John's readers. They were living in the Greco-Roman world where plurality was everything. And people could worship any gods they wanted and you could not say that your god was better than another one because that was offensive. You would get in trouble for that. They were living in the very same world that we live in today. And maybe worse because they were (laughs) slaughtered at times for their testimony. The second thing that we have to remember from this passage, is that we have to examine ourselves very, very carefully to make sure that Jesus Christ is absolutely at the core and center of who we are and what we do. Now, if you just think about that question on a surface level, you'll go, well, of course, Pastor, I mean, we're we're all here, we're at First Baptist Church, we're all evangelical Christians. Of course Jesus is at the center. i got to tell you, There's a lot of things I don't agree with John Piper about. There's a lot of things I do agree with John Piper about. John Piper wrote in one of his books, he said, it's amazing I'll talk to people about heaven and what they're looking forward to about heaven. They'll talk about I'm going to see my grandma and I'm going to see my mansion I have and I'm going to walk those streets of gold and I'm going to be with this and that and the other. And he says, you know what? They'll talk for five minutes and never once mention the name of Jesus. He said, would heaven be heaven if Jesus weren't there? No. But you see how quickly we can slip away from Jesus being central? You see how quickly we can slip away from taking the story of David and Goliath, for example. Say the story of David and Goliath is about the fact that we all have these big monsters in our lives. We have these huge giants in our lives, and we just have to stand up to those giants in our lives, and we have to take the truths of God's Word like rocks and sling them, and and we'll we'll defeat those giants in our lives. And that's a great principle. That's not what that text is about at all. It's about a man named Jesus who stood up against the enemy and said, I will stand alone in the gap, and I will save my people. By standing in front of the Goliath, and I will defeat him. Every 
page of Scripture points us to only one person, and that's to Jesus. And so he must be the center and core of our lives. I fear, I truly fear, that one of the reasons why we are not more outspoken, and I'm not speaking about individuals in this room, I'm talking about we as evangelical Christians, why we are not more outspoken is because Christ is not the center. If you're a Bonhoeffer fan at all, I encourage you to get a copy of the book that he wrote in 1960 called Christ, no, not in it was printed in 1960, he wrote it in 1942, called Christ the Center. It was actually a series of sermons that he preached about the centrality of Christ in the life of the believer. Christ the center. But I want you to ask yourselves seriously this morning, is Jesus Christ at the center of everything I do, say, think? Every decision. And if not, how is that affecting my fellowship with him and with other believers around me? John would say, beloved, little children, understand this is what makes us Christians. Christ is at the center. The one that we have seen and heard and felt and touched and experienced. And we may have not felt him with these hands, heard him with these ears, seen him with these eyes, but we've heard him and seen him here and we've experienced him here. That's why our grandparents would sing, you ask me how I know he lives? They didn't say how I believe he lives, how I think he lives, how I hope he lives. You ask me how I know he lives? Somebody respond. He lives within my heart. And you can tell your lost friends as lovingly and as gently as you need to, whether you agree with me or not is between you and God. I just have to tell you what I know. Well, yeah, you say you know. No, 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 you don't understand. I know it more than I know the love of my wife. I know it more than I know the sun will come up tomorrow morning. I know it more than I know anything because I have seen. I'm Mark Bertram, who was flying up Route 3, saying, you know what, God, I don't want to die today, but if you take me home today, I'm ready to go, but I hope you don't take me today. And about a half a mile later, that truck from Hope Christian Church pulled out in, right in front of him, and he was going a little faster than he should have. He slammed at 60 miles an hour in the back of that truck, flew off the front of the motorcycle, did a flip in midair, and landed sitting on his fanny facing, facing the vegetable boxes in the back of the truck. And God said, I heard you. I won't bring you home today. You ask Mark Bertram how he knows Christ lives, he'll have a story to tell you. And that's our message. Now, please understand, that doesn't mean for the person that didn't get flipped. Remember, God has a story for each one of us. And in, every, in our each individual ways, he answers and tells us the things that he's teaching us and that he wants us to learn as he works us through the path of our lives. But we know because we've experienced it in our own hearts. And if you've not had that experience... There's only one or two reasons why. Either you are a follower of Jesus, but you're so out of sync with his spirit that you're not recognizing it, or you've never truly surrendered your life to him, and so he's not the center of your life. Either way, today would be a good day to make that right. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opening of John's letter, for the truth that without your son, 
there is no life. Without Him living, walking, breathing, eating, crying, laughing, suffering for us, we are dead in our sins. How dare someone think that they can come to you without coming through your Son? And Father, I pray that you would help us to put Christ at the center of our lives, to be bold, gentle, but bold. I pray that this week you will give us opportunities to stand for you, for your Son, for the Gospel. Whether it is to defend it or whether it is to plant a seed that it might lead someone else to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that in these moments as we respond, that you will touch hearts, that you will touch lives. Father, by your plan, Jesus paid every penny of the debt that we owed. But that does not alleviate us. It only transfers. Now our debt is to him to live our lives in humble, obedient service to the one who gave his life so that we could have eternal life. Thank you. Thank you for that opportunity. We ask these things in Jesus' name.